Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. Well, John, we are cruising into summer here. You know, it's uh, crazy that spring is like almost behind us. Yeah, May May time frame. It's a good, good time of the year. Still, uh, you know, warm during the day, obviously, and then still cool enough at nights. Right, right. Pa- pollen's is. pretty much past. And, um, you know, we're celebrating, Steve, uh, South Carolina baseball. Oh, we should. They're we number should, three in the nation. Are they really? Number three? Yeah, they were That's not. Impressive. Pre- they, they've had a rough couple of years. They've had some pretty good history, but... Yeah, they're like um, one of the best teams in the nation. So um, y'all have had quite a year. I mean, beat Clemson, yeah. and you know the women's basketball went to the final four. Yeah, it's and, been good. I mean, we're, yeah. we're coming back, man. Yeah, you we're are. Back. It's quite fear a, of the Gamecock. It's quite a uh, <laughs> sports school you have there. <laughs> That's right. I don't know, but it's all it's all about football, right? We're still not up in, in Clemson's level yet, or Georgia. I mean, Georgia's obviously king of the, oh, the mountain right now. king of so. the mountain for sure, yeah. But, yeah, yeah baseball is fun to watch. Yeah, not much sports going on this time of year, though. So I, just... I do have one comment on um, – okay. so I watched a baseball game. You know, they have new rules that they've implemented the pitch clock. And I went and oh, saw yeah. the Augusta Green Jackets a couple of weeks ago, and that game was over in like two hours and 25 minutes. And it was actually enjoyable because wow. it went really quick. That's a good model. I, I like that. I like speeding things up a little bit. Yeah, you know? it was good. It was it was entertaining. They They got on the mound and they pitched it. Versus That's good. You got going bigger, over to first base. Bigger bags now too, right? They do. They do. So interesting how they've changed the history of that game. I mean, that's a yeah. very you know historical. Well, yeah, they made some good changes. I think yeah. that's smart for sports too. to, From to the continue to yep. object. You know, continue to evolve. Totally so agree. to speak. Totally yeah, agree. That's good. That's good. Speaking of good, we have some good topics to talk about. We're going to talk about uh, how to save Social Security, right? Yeah, you and I can go up and and with four things, um, you know, yes. not being political associated with it, but there could be four changes that you could make that would get Social Security back on track. The problem is, is you got politicians in the middle of it, <clears> and the they point fingers, and quite frankly, they're not honest when they had these discussions. But we're going to give you some discussion and some solutions on how that could be fixed. Yeah, and we'll give you some perspective on how that's probably going to play out, okay? So, uh, yeah, so you can kind of take ratchet down the anxiety level about Social Security. Also, we're going to talk about four insurance secrets, John. Um, Things they don't want you to know. Um, Very recent article. Um, Yeah, I mean, insurance is not all that meets the eye. You know, sometimes you, you, you get a quote and you think, well, this is the type policy I need to get, and um what understanding what's going on behind the scenes mm-hmm. is helpful. And so we got some details of how that works behind the scenes. And I think you'll be surprised. So good topic. Um, and by the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey smart investor pro with over 28 years experience in financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm a Dave Ramsey certified counselor. I have an MBA in finance and been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 30 years. We're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every Friday morning. Yeah, you can go to our website as well, moneymd.net, to, to link to the podcast. You can listen to them. You have the inventory. We've been doing this for, gosh, 10 years now. I think we have 100,000 downloads of the pod- podcast. We just got notified wow. of that. So it's a great place to get information. You know, that's what we try to do is go back and look at at history a little bit and give you a, kind of a different take than what you're hearing in the news media. Because the news media, quite frankly, is so political that – it's hard to know what to believe and what not to believe. So we try to take the politics out of it, give you some data, give you some facts to think about. So moneymd.net. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, MoneyMD, and I'm doing the prescription this week. 
There you go. And you can link to us there on our webpage, um, moneymd.net. We'd love to hear from you. Um, we'll take your questions and we'll talk about those right here on the show. Well, John, we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this comes from, uh, it's new research from the UBC Sauter School of Business. I'm not sure where that is. But uh, the, the research they did is uh, almost half of Americans pull out their 401ks when they change their jobs and about 85% completely cash it out. So I did some math, um, 28 years old. So not only do you have taxes, but you also have penalties mm. if you spend that, if you pull that out. Right. But if, let's say you're 28 years old, you've been saving for five or six years, maybe you have 50 grand in there. So it's not just the 50 grand that is is um, what you have to look at. If you kept that 50 grand and you made an average of 9% all the way out to age 65, it would double that that 50 grand would double um, five times and it would be over a million dollars. So wow. it's not a $50,000 decision. No. So when people call us up and say, Hey, I want to take money out of my 401k. It's like, Oh, that's it's just painful. Not only do you pay taxes and penalties, but you're really robbing the future. You are. And young people do this all the time. And I have to confess, when I first got my first job after a year and a half, I cashed out my 401k. Did you? Okay. I only had like a thousand dollars in there, yeah. but Still, I and mean, it was down to it lost money. <laughs> but, Small uh, amount. But still, it's a foolish decision that young people make all the time. You, you got to get that money in there, and then you got to leave it and let it grow because yep. the power <clears throat> of compounding returns over thirty years is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to to that that kind of money. So the money you get in there first is the most valuable in terms of you know the the time and the compounding returns that you have. For it. So good fact of the week. You don't want to be one of those people that pull your money out early. So there you go. And that leads us up here to our first topic, John, and that is uh, the politics of Social Security reform. Yeah, a lot of politics in it. This is a recent article out of Morningstar, a gentleman named John Reckenthaler. And, um, you know, we know now, I mean, we know that Washington's in gridlock for decades now, both uh, Democrats and Republicans They've been able, to, unable to to hold even a, a conversation about Social Security reform. I mean, there was a, a brief flirtation between uh, former President Barack Obama and uh, then House Speaker John Boehner uh, many years ago, um, but they just they can't talk about it. I mean, it's just right. um, it's just very frustrating. And um, you know, no question, you know, we want to look at the numbers, um, but there's political barriers, and it's not only quite possible that the two parties will maintain their standoff with Democrats, you know, preventing benefit cuts and Republicans resisting any kind of tax increases. Um, But, you know, if they do nothing, which is probably going to be the answer um, for a while anyway, the Social Security Trust Fund is expected to to make changes and have to cut benefits out in 2035. So, um, you know, both sides have kind of dug their heels in. Uh, And we're going to kind of go through some some options that they could do that have been floated out there before. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it really gets used as a political wedge, no matter what common sense, you know, suggestion is put out there. Um, and we've seen that before with the, you know, the, the ads of pushing grandma over the cliff, so yeah. to speak. Anything yeah. that talks about, you know, a possible cut in the future gets blown out of proportion. But yeah, and the GOP, I mean, they're in a real predicament about this because, I mean, changing the inflation computation for instance, would put Republicans in a bind that they could not do that by themselves, the pair benefits in any way, shape, or form, because the program is very popular, and so it gets used for politics. You know, I mean, doing so would require a bipartisan effort, 
as with the Social Security Administration amendment back in 1983, which, among other items, effectively reduced benefits by include by extending the eligible age for benefits from 65 to 67. That's the last time any significant change mm. was made to Social That's, Security. That yeah. was a long time 40 ago. 40 years 40 ago. 40 years ago, yeah. And that bill received strong support from both parties before being signed by President Reagan back then. So that's what it's going to take to change it this time. Yeah, and in such a scenario, Republicans would face two choices. One, they could agree to higher payroll taxes to resupply the Social Security Trust Fund, which under current regulations is the only source from which the Social Security payments can be made. Or they could attempt to avoid a tax hike by seeking to change the, the funding rules that Social Security benefits could be paid from general government revenue rather than, you know, from a, a separate account. So uh, that would be an unsavory choice. So the, the GOP's predicament would likely unleash a political battle that would make the debt ceiling discussion look like a, a Sunday evening bridge quarrel. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, nor would the resolution necessarily be happy either. You know, peace treaties breed different emotions than bipartisan agreements. And, um, you know, so there would take a lot of be a lot of back and forth associated with it. And of course, our hope is um, this income, this outcome will not occur from, you know, stalemate because as 2035 approaches, um, you know, something must be done. I mean, Democrats are going to feel the overt pressure to bargain and uh, political moderates will make it clear that they will, you know, accept neither a large or an abrupt tax hike nor, you know, permit Social Security to, to run an explicit deficit um, and Republicans, of course, are going to not want to have tax you know, raises. So that's that's the back and forth that we've heard quite a bit. But, you know, we could be wrong, but we we see this. You know, we'll tell you how we think we're going to play out at the end. But there is a possibility, Steve, that, that, you know, if you get some some sensible people up there that look at the numbers that try to do the right thing for the public, um, you could come up with a solution for this. That's right. You could. And um, unfortunately, you know, there are some political hurdles that have to be overcome. And and they're based on some assumptions, John. I mean, so the, the solutions we're going to talk about here that would fix it are kind of based on these assumptions. One is that Democrats will not accept any benefit cuts. You know, that, mm. that's been kind of proven so far. Um, nor will they accept a means testing as a, they believe that program's popularity owes in part to its universal appeal, mm. universal approach. Um, so that makes sense. But Republicans, they're also going to re- resist any redistributive efforts, such as increasing the salary cap on the payroll tax. Um, so those are some of the basic political assumptions that go into these solutions. Yeah, so if you, if you take those three assumptions, um, there are four things that you could, could utilize and implement that would help make it whole for, for many, many years. The first one is, is actually raise the eligibility age from... 67, the full retirement age, to 68 and a half, so about a year and a half longer. Um, and basically that would mean that Democrats would have, have to have a concession. Um, this would indeed be a benefit reduction in disguise as the amount of the potential payment would remain unchanged. The Democrats have crossed this bridge uh, once before, and, you know, if they're at the table, they may be persuaded to do this again. So raising the eligibility mm-hmm. age... I think it'd be easy. You could probably set that, you know, 20-year window before it impacted people. Uh, Another one is the cost of living adjustment. Um, Instead of the current calculation, use a different uh, chain-weighted version of the CPI index. And so, again, that would be a 
concession by the Democrats, if they were to go along with it, uh, it would slightly reduce the program's cost of living raises, and it would um, change would be initially, um, you know, undetectable. Really, it would certainly become more noticeable later in the years um, of a retiree. So those two are really concessions by the Democrats because they've been for those, and the Republicans would have to have some concessions as well. <clears throat> That's right, and and one of those would be. Um, <clears throat> would be a solution to reduce the future benefit growth for higher income participants. So to kind of means test it in a way. Um, And that would require Republican concessions, you know, although technically a form of means testing, this proposal would appeal to Democrats as it would, it retains all the participants. Um, But, you know, such provision uh, would cut any worker. It wouldn't cut any workers social security distribution either today or later, rather what it would do is it would lower future payment growth um, for higher income workers, higher income benefit yep. people over the time. So, yeah, that's that's one way of doing it. Another thing they could do is raise the payroll tax. Now, this would also be a big Republican concession, um, to be sure, because GOP it dislikes tax increases in all forms. And however, um, if the Democrats can accept benefit cuts, then Republicans should be able to tolerate maybe a modest tax hike um, that would apply to all, as opposed to one that redistributes income from the wealthy. You know, the suggested 1.4% increase would be split among workers and employers, so each would pay about a 0.7% increase in the uh, tax hike. Uh, for Social Security. Um, so, yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, and so the, the the analysis we're looking at is pretty cool. So if you did those four um, changes over the next 75 years, it would, it would extend Social Security another 75 years. And so raising the eligibility age by a year and a half to 68 and a half would restore 28% of the benefits um, to get it back to being whole. To switch in the to the chain-weighted CPI would give another 19% restoration uh, slow in the benefit growth for top 20% of earners would give 11% restoration. And then raising the t- uh, total payroll tax by 1.4% would give 43% restoration. So what it, what that's basically doing is bridging the, the gap that is out there to 100% of coverage for the next 75 years. So, you know, ultimately, Steve, I mean, Social Security fate rests in the public's hands. I mean, we elect the representatives uh, who refuse to negotiate and, um, you know, we have primary elections to get politicians in there, um, it, you know, and there's the arguments continue. There's no work in this area. And uh, ultimately, you know, voters are going to seek solutions. And, um, you know, we have that conversation with people all the time now. It's like, I don't think I'm going to get Social Security. And right. I, I, I personally disagree with that. I think that there will be benefits. I do think these sure. changes, some of these types of changes will be implemented. But it's never done proactively. It's always reactively. So we're going to be knocking right. on the door of Social Security, you know, uh, having issues, and they'll probably get it done at the 12th hour. Yeah, it's just like the debt ceiling. You know, they're not going to do anything to their backs against the wall, and then it's going to be an 11th, 12th hour fix, as you mentioned. So I think we won't see any changes really until, you know, 2034, you know, or a year maybe before yep. it runs out or, or when it does run out. I mean, the political heat would have to get pretty hot, mm-hmm. you know, for, for politicians to come together on this issue. 
And that's not going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> no, it's so. not. But I also don't think, I do think there'll be adjustments to Social Security. People not getting any, I don't, I don't agree no, with that. No, that's not going to um, happen. Even 50% I, cuts, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, no, no. I people think rely on it. Um, you know, it's an important it, program. People will get their Social Security. I believe it's just going to be, like you said, there'll be a fix, you know, as they're talking about. There'll be some adjustments. There'll be some adjustments, but it'll be slow. And, and It's going to be a while. Going to be a while, exactly. <laughs> so, good topic though, very important topic because it is a super important program to most people, and that leads us up here to our question of the week. Yeah, the question is: is uh, what's a good allocation for retirement? Um, you know, this person had had been aggressive their whole life, and right. a little little scary about uh, retirement and you know markets and so forth. So, what's a what's yeah. what's your take on that, Steve? Well, good question. Um, you know, whenever you retire, uh, you're you're probably going to start drawing money out of your investments, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you start drawing money out of your investments, that's the key because you're going to need some fixed income in your investment portfolio to draw from while markets are down. Um, so kind of a rule of thumb is, you know, you need 20, 30, 40% fixed income in your portfolio. Most retirees have about 40%, kind of a 60-40 mix, 60% stocks, 40% fixed income. That's a really good mix because, you know, you have plenty of fixed income to draw from that can ride out pretty much any bear market, you know, even five or six years if you had to, if you have 40% in fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you do need to pair it back for sure. I'd say within about five years of retirement and you start looking at it, and within three years for sure, pair it back, maybe have 20% fixed in there. Um, but when you hit retirement and start drawing money out, I like to see, you know, 30 or 40% fixed income. Yeah, and then you wrap that in a process of when markets are down, you have a process of pulling it from the bonds, which is what right. we do, right? Exactly. And when the yeah. markets come back up, you can pull it from the, the stock side of the house. So, um, yeah, wrapping that in a process is good. And, yeah, I agree with you. 60-40 is a great. I mean, Matthew had a really good um, way to phrase the 60-40. said 40% is uh, so your portfolio is prepared for a downturn with right. the 40%, and it's prepared for, uh, you know, growth. With the 60%. So right. it's, it's got two pieces that handles different market conditions. It does. It does. And there's nothing wrong with maybe a 50-50 mix as yeah, well. Yeah. You know, particularly now that rates are higher, the fixed income piece is producing more now mm-hmm. with yield. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that works sometimes, yes. like now. Yep. So, yeah, nothing wrong with that as well. So, good question. All right, and that leads us up here to our next topic, and that is the four investment secrets that they don't want you to know, John. Um <laughs> Yeah, these are um, these are, are interesting. It comes from a bottom line article very recently. Uh, Amy Feinstein um, wrote this, but you know, Americans they we spend more than a trillion dollars a year on their health and their homes and their cars for insurance to insure those. And so each year, I mean, Americans are you know left wondering why their insurance adds interesting perks, but they don't ever. You know, but it doesn't cover their claims, you know, and the rates keep rising, right? No insurer seems to offer reasonable coverage for the, the certain really important risk, um, but yet they'll throw on some perks on top of their uh, policies that, that maybe you don't use. Um, so insurance, though, is supposed to protect us from the big financial risk and provide us some peace of mind. But instead, some policies leave people, you know, perplexed and infuriated when they don't cover what you might consider kind of a basic coverage and our basic care. 
Um, so understanding insurance policies can help you better know what to look for and be better prepared the next time you shop for a policy. So here are four insurance sector secrets that you should know about before you shop for your next insurance policy. Yeah, this is interesting that the gym membership included in your health insurance really isn't to keep you healthy. And that's, we'll unwind that. But, you know, a lot of health insurance and, and Medicare Advantage plans, they include free or heavily discounted gym memberships. Um, but the insurers don't do this to help the enrollees become healthier per se uh, and incur fewer medical bills. In fact, monetary-based employer incentives such as gym memberships don't usually help people start going to the gym. The reality is, you know, insurers offer this because the insurance shopper is most likely uh, to be enticed by that free gym membership. They're already fit and they're healthy and <laughs> they're lower risk. So they're That's cheaper right. to insure. It's really smart. It is very smart. Uh, you know, so it's a, it's a kind of a, a marketing gimmick, if you will. They're getting the right people into their, uh, into their queue, if yeah, you will. They're trying to attract mm -hmm. lower risk, lower yeah. cost people. So Bottom line. interesting, yep. isn't it? Yeah, I mean, because, yeah, you always thought it was to keep you healthy, you know, at least that's what I always thought. Yeah, anyway. yeah, I did too. So, so what do you do? So, um, so you got to lean toward insurance policies. In fact, that do include gym memberships because all else being equal, even if you suspect you'll never go to the gym, um, these insurers can afford to offer policies with better benefits than other plans because they tend to attract healthier applicants hmm. who are cheaper to insure. So in fact, those are tend to be better policies yeah. Yeah. because they, cool. they've cut costs by attracting healthier folks. So that is interesting. Yeah. And then, um, all right. So here's another one, you know, that may not be a popular topic to talk about here, but unfortunately it's true. Pet insurance is never very good. Say it isn't um, so. That's what they're telling me here. Um, you don't have that. You have a cat, right? Anyway, don't she you? passed away. Oh, for ringing that up. I'm anyway. sorry. I'll <laughs> so, get you a new one. We have some kittens. We'll, oh, we'll yeah. drop them off at your, in your neighborhood. I'll bet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, take a close look, though, at the policy that promises to provide health coverage for your pet, and you're likely to conclude that it isn't worth the cost. Um you know, here's an example. You know, a, a policy for a 12-year-old, um, you know, bulldog costs more than $4,300 annually, but it pays out only $5,000 per year in maximum benefits. Um, so it has yeah. a big, it has a very low cap. Yep. Yeah. So insurance is is economical only whenever consumers buy enough uh, to buy the coverage, um, even though they don't expect to use it very often, as they do with homeowners or auto insurance. But that's not the case with pet insurance, which suffers from this problem called selection, adverse selection, actually, um, within the industry. Many pet owners who buy pet insurance have unhealthy pets, and they're willing to try to treat any option, anything for their pet to, that offers even a slim chance of extending their pet's lives. So as a result, pet insurance providers price their policies as if everyone who enrolls is one of those expensive to insure customers who's going to, you know, go out of their way to file a claim for everything that they possibly can. Um, so the only way insurers can offer pet policies with affordable premiums is to include very low coverage limits, um, massive coverage gaps and long waiting periods and other restrictions. Hmm. So what, what do you need to do is insure instead, you know, pet insurance might be worth it. Um, you know, it's cost if you believe that your pet's likely to endure a lot of expensive health issues 
and or you're going to do everything possible to keep your pet alive. But if not, take that money and and then use it to to fund a savings account to cover the vet bills. That's really the answer. Instead of buying the insurance, you know, put the money in a in a pot, you know, invest it, save it, and then you can cover those costs when they arise. Yeah, that's good. That's good. An- another uh, secret here is dental insurance is not very good. I mean, it's doomed to disappoint, and it doesn't seem like dental insurance should suffer from a selection problem, right? We're all at risk of having some type of dental bill, some of them sizable. The problem is that many expensive dental procedures, they can be delayed for months or even years. So a lot of times people wait to enroll in dental coverage until their dentist warn them that they have an expensive procedure on the horizon. So as a result, you know, many dental policies cover routine cleanings and inexpensive procedures fairly well, but pricey and less common procedures, very, very poor coverage, if at all. So that's exactly the opposite of what insurance is supposed to do. We want to cover those big risks and dental insurance is just not a, it's just not a good trade-off and and there's a selection issue there as well. Yeah, that's the problem. There's that adverse selection issue where people buy it who know they have something coming up. Um, therefore, the policies are very limited. So when you buy dental insurance, you end up with more of a prepayment policy. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just prepaying for what you know you're going to use later these benefits, and then therefore they have to cap it really low to make sure that they make money off of it. <clears throat> That's what the insurance companies do. But yeah, dental insurance offered by your employer might be worth the price if it's well subsidized by the employer. Um, but read the details carefully before signing up so you understand what is and isn't covered and what the waiting periods are and the other restrictions. You know, if dental coverage does that does cover big, you know, uh, insurance, big expensive dental bills um, is available to you, um, then, you know, it might be worth it. But, you know, schedule your dental exam shortly before your insurance annual opening enrollment period and ask your dentist to give you as much advance warning as possible about procedures that you may need down the road um, so that you can time those well with your policy. Depending on the policy's terms and your dental needs, you might be able to sign up for coverage and wait out the waiting periods without endangering your your dental health. So that's one approach. Um, Another another thing to be aware of about insurance is life insurance and annuities are priced for lifespan outliers. Okay. Hmm. So if you've ever applied for life insurance, you know, you likely were subject to medical tests and you know, some, uh, and, and we're required to fill out a lengthy questionnaire about your health, history, your hobbies, your habits. And after all those tests and questions, you probably thought that the insurer must have all the info necessary to predict the longevity and price your insurance policy accordingly. But surprisingly, it didn't. Yeah. And so an economist um, looked at some of the data from the life insurance and uh, all the statisticians, you know, they, they, they do collect a lot of information on you and they realized that uh, the consumers, um, they have a better sense, obviously, of their own longevity than insurers do based on the data. So the the result was, is based on the research, consumers who decided to purchase life insurance tend to somehow know that they're likely to die sooner than the insurers expect. So the result is insurers, you know, they certainly know that issue. They They look at the data and to protect themselves, they set the premiums on the assumption that every applicant will die somewhat sooner than the medical test and questions predict. So uh, this makes insurance overpriced for consumers who simply want it for a peace of mind or financial planning purposes. So again, it's a selection 
problem. People, yeah, people are they know the the outcome better than the data, and the insurance companies have adjusted that over time. Exactly. Yeah, I mean this problem is more pronounced for life insurance companies that sell annuities, which provide monthly payments um, as long as the policyholder is alive. Um, the longer the annuity uh, buyer lives, the greater the odds the insurance company will take a financial loss. But insurance companies typically price annuities based on the applicant's age and gender without any medical test or lengthy questionnaires. Thus, an annuity buyer who comes from a very long-lived family or who lives a, a safe, healthy lifestyle has a huge advantage over the annuity sellers. So the sellers... You know, over time, they price their annuities on the assumption that the buyer will outlive the actuarial tables and will draw income for a very, very long time. So it's a similar problem. So what what do you do? Um, you know, life insurance and annuities really are, are, are rarely great investments because they're meant to be, you know, used as insurance, right? Mm-hmm. So um, if you want life insurance, but you don't expect to die anytime soon, or you simply want an annuity, but you don't expect to live exceptionally long, then lean toward policies and annuities that consumers tend to shun. Yeah. So as an example, an annuity buyer might select a period certain annuity that's a guaranteed to make payments for a predetermined number of years rather than based on lifespan. So a buyer who expects to live a very long life uh, probably wouldn't choose that option. Or a life insurance shopper might select a policy that has a long waiting period before death benefits begin. So insurance products such as these often have better terms. They're not as popular, but it's something that you have to kind of you know view based on your own situation. That's right. So choosing policies, you know, that, that signal insur- insurers that you don't expect to make any claims can lead to significantly lower rates with other forms of insurance too. For example, I mean, insurers tend to offer the best terms to a home auto insurance shoppers who select policy with large deductibles. Um, not only do the deductibles save the insurers money, but people who buy those policies kind of send the message they don't expect to make any claims, right? Therefore, their low deductibles are rarely as good of a deal. Low deductibles are rarely as good of a deal since you have to pay a lot more as the the higher risk, you're a higher risk to the insurance company. So, yep. you know, lean toward policies that that um, kind of signal to the insurer that you're a very low risk person. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't plan to make a claim. So higher deductibles is always a good idea for insurance, not only because you're paying part of it out of your pocket and you save premium that way, but also because you're the type of insurer that the insurance company wants to cover because you're a lower risk you're not planning to make claims, you're going to get a better deal on your insurance. Yep. That's kind of the, the moral of the story there. So good topic. And that leads us up here to our final thing, and that is the prescription of the week. Yeah, we still have a lot of time before the next uh, election, you know, particularly the presidential election. So, but we still, you know, there's um, politics is in, is in the news constantly. Yep. Um, just a lot of negativity, uh, feelings and emotions. I mean, the, the stock market um, is impacted by politics, but only to a small portion. There's always something else that's happening in the economy or the world that that over um, uh, overwhelms what the politicians are doing. And the other fact is, is the you know companies are reacting today to what's going on in Washington, higher interest rates and inflation. They're making adjustments, and so you know it's always been like that. So don't don't focus too much on politics and your investments. The markets have done well over time in many different types of administration. 
Um, just make sure you have a plan. It's working towards a goal for you. Don't get so caught up in politics. That's exactly right. Remember that the market is driven by earnings and profits um, and the expectations of how those are going to change in the future. It's not driven by politics. You know, politics do affect those over time, but not to a large degree. So focus on, you know, risk and returns over long periods of time. For, forget politics yeah. in the short term. I tell you one of the things interesting, and, and it's hard to even speak to it, but AI, art, artificial intelligence, mm. is changing the way businesses operate. And we don't, we can't even understand how it's going to change over the next five to 10 years, but it's going to revolutionize just businesses and the productivity is going to increase and profits are going to increase. So, I mean, there's just a lot of technology out there that we don't even know about today that's, that's occurring. Um, And, you know, so AI is one of those, it's, there's some negatives to it as well, but um, you know, that is, it's real though. That is, is that is really going to affect profitability in the future. It is a significant technology. It really is. That's uh, got a lot behind it. It's not just hype. So, yeah. 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 And I think that's going to be positive for returns and earnings in the future. Yeah, I do. So interesting topic. All right. And that brings us to a close for this week's edition of MoneyMD. Tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Check us out on our website, moneymd.net. Send us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. Or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of your week. Have a good one. is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment tax or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. All hosts are representatives of Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor.